You're listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com. Thank you, Pastor Rick, for praying for Israel. I had it here in my notes, and it's so appropriate. And I couldn't help but think this morning, a couple of weeks ago, I was doing a sermon on eschatology the last times, and one of the things I mentioned is that before the Antichrist come back, Israel needs to be destabilized, totally destabilized, and, that, and that's going on right now. However, I know a lot happens in between. I had to fast forward to Revelation 20, where it says that the enemy comes against God's people and the city he loves, and fire comes down and destroys them. We know how the movie ends, so it is all good. It is all good. Um, having said that, I'd like to kind of shift into the New Testament. Pastor Rick and I were going to do a series on Philippians, and he gave me wonderful license to start anywhere I wanted. So I wanted to start in what I consider, uh, I think, the highlight of not only Philippians, but the New Testament. Before I do that, I came across this. I do this little devotional. It's a monthly devotional. You guys are probably very familiar with our daily bread. But there was a small little devotion in the back that just hit home with me. I wanted to start with that because it dovetails so well into what I'm going to talk about. It's by Monica LaRose, and it's called Hope Deeper Than Death. It says, if there's one thing the tremendous trauma and pain experienced globally during the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed, it's that our world is wounded and in deep need of hope that's sustained by more than optimism and good advice. We need hope that's deeper than death. I love that, hope that's deeper than death. Of late, I'm hearing more and more conversations by church leaders who've come to realize the need for the church to regain a central focus on the cross and resurrection of Christ, the story of God's cosmic defeat of the principalities and powers of death and evil for truly sustaining hope. Sadly, some faith communities have lost their robust emphasis on the story of cosmic redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus in exchange for an individualistic emphasis, one focused on a personal experience of forgiveness merged with positive advice for a happy life. But during the pandemic, some church leaders began to realize that kind of message that was popular before on topics like raising your children, how to be a good worker, and adding spark to your marriage were failing to meet the needs of their congregation. To those grieving with the loss of loved ones or a livable income, or those simply weighed down by the suffering they saw all around them, messages focused on individual success and happiness were beginning to ring hollow because people were wrestling with something much deeper than small hurdles to successful lives, they were grappling with the weight of very real tragedies in a world still under the grip of what Paul calls principalities and powers of evil, injustice, and death. As has always been true, the kind of hope we need as humans is one that fully reckons with and faces the true weight of sin and death's wounding of our world, and that witnesses to hope grounded in the fullness of Christ's victory. The gospel is the story of God's redemption of a wounded cosmos 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus, an event that has changed the fabric of reality and that in God's grace, we've been invited to live into and share with the world. Only when we fully reckon with the bad news, the depth of evil's wounding of creation, the ongoing tragedy of death in our world, can we grasp the unexpected wonder of the good news that through Christ's victory, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Even as we lament, honestly, the groaning of creation, we can experience the good news that Jesus is alive. Even as we journey through the valley of the shadow of death, he's alive and on the move, working through the spirit to bring life, working through us. This is the good news, the priceless gift that we've been entrusted to share. Jesus is alive, working through small communities of people filled with the spirit and with that hope, carrying all of us, creation itself, from death into glorious resurrection life. And I'm telling you, this is a community of hope and a community of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you. We're on the winning side of this. If you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be in uh, Philippians 2. I'm going to go through verses 1 through 11. Um, And the reason I read that little devotional, I think it sets this section of Scripture up perfectly in that I believe Philippians 2 falls into the category of God's cosmic defeat of the principalities of evil, death, and destruction. And if you look around our society, that's exactly what we see. This section of Scripture, some of you know, are very astute Bible students, is called Uh, the kenosis passage, if you will, especially verses 7 through 11, in that in verse 7, and I'll get into this deeper, uh, Christ is said to have emptied himself, and the Greek word for that is kenao. So we have this kenosis passage, and I'll get into that, but it really makes sense as we think, and keep that in the back of your mind as I go through this. And the reason I picked this is because I'm always surprised how misunderstood this section of scripture is. And I really think it's so profound that this section of scripture has the ability to change the way we see Jesus, and it should. And that perception will change the way we see the world around us. And it's my sincere opinion that we need to look at this present situation through the lens of who Jesus really is, because it changes things, it changes things. This section also, as you'll see, Paul, he writes about what true humility is, and it's a perfect divine prescription for us. So God, as I get into this, Lord God, I just pray that you would move me out of the way. Let your spirit speak for me, and I pray we can wring this out for every theological truth contained therein and minister to us and with us in the name of Jesus. Okay, so a bit of background. Obviously, Philippians was written by Paul at about 61 AD, give or take a couple years, and he was writing from prison to the Philippian church, a Roman prison, but not the dreaded Mamertine that he wrote 2 Timothy and where he died from. He's actually in a rented house, if you can believe it. He's under house arrest, but he is free 
to share the gospel with anyone that passes by. And that is the genesis of this wonderful letter. Let me read verses one through four and dive into this thing. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort for his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Now, you can kind of get the sense of this, and if you read the first chapter of Philippians, Paul points to this, but the church in Philippi is much like us. We can become a little self-centered. We can become a little preoccupied with number one. It's very easy to do, so Paul advises, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Be humble, count others more important than yourself. Look out for the interests of others, just not what interests you. Find out what what someone else is interested in and walk with them in that. And then, you know, and I've got to say this, humility, and for me, I struggle with this. It's probably, or being other-centered as opposed to self-centered, it's one of the hardest things, I think, not only in our important relationships with loved one and family, but in our family of faith, in our church, It's hard. Sometimes it gets put second, third, fourth, or fifth when I think it should be higher. So what does Paul do? He draws our attention to the ultimate, ultimate example of humility, and can I please say self-humiliation of Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 11. There is no greater example of this. And here's where what I call Paul drops a theological bombshell a theological bombshell. He will take us to the lowest depths that can ever be attained in verses six through eight. And then he'll take us to the highest heights that can ever be attained in verses nine through 11. And what I said earlier is so true. Theologians have called this the diamond of the New Testament. And I think when I'm done, you will understand why. Um, And certainly Paul, obviously capable and and through the power of the Spirit, was giving us this great theological lesson, but he was also simultaneously giving us this humble, divine prescription on how we should treat each other. And it's recorded right here for us, so please give me your attention. Now, Paul has outlined what the Philippian church was doing wrong and what he wanted them to do, and now here's where we get into a deep theological revelation in comparison with Christ. Let me read verses five through 11, and then we'll break it down kind of in bite-sized pieces. Verse five says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Yes, and amen. Amen. So in verse five, he says, hey, Philippians and us, your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus. Then he describes Jesus' attitude in verse six. In verse six, he says, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be grasped. Let's take that. That's very, very important. This is Jesus' humility in heaven, if you will. We are getting a bird's eye view of Jesus Christ's humility in heaven. He existed in the majestic form of God from eternity past. This means that his very nature, this passage is saying his very nature is the nature of God. And pragmatically, let me say this, it's easy to understand, I think, if if we kind of think of it in a linear fashion. Jesus possessed the sum total of the attributes or those things that God possessed that made God God, Jesus possessed those things exactly. And if we pay attention, dear friends, if we pay attention, Jesus alludes to this all through the Bible. Do you remember his high priestly prayer in the upper room of John 17? Here's what he says. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is saying, Father, we've had this glory, always have. Show us, show them, restore me that glory. And I'll say, honestly, this can be a challenge. And I struggled for years as a young Christian with this. The challenge to think of Jesus, the man being fully God. This is critically important. I hope I can give you a a couple of tools to grab this because I know there's years I struggled with this. But dear friends, I think we need to let our minds dwell on this incomprehensible reality to enlarge our hearts. That's the only way spiritual growth takes place. I call it going to the spiritual gym. You deal with these sort of incomprehensible thoughts and the spirit enlarges your heart and increases sanctification. It's a wonderful thing. Follow me here. Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God. When he says that, he's not referring to his external form, but his internal form. We're familiar with Hebrews 1.3 that says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. This means that our Lord Jesus Christ was not a mere reflector of God's glory. That's what we're we're charged to be. We should be reflecting God's glory. We should keep the mirror clean. We reflect God better when we do. But anyway, we're a reflector of God's glory. This is saying Jesus is a generator of God's glory. He generates God's glory. And here's where we see, again, his eternal humility in heaven. Watch this. Although he existed in this splendor of being God in heaven, he did not consider it something to be grasped. 
Now, be careful that word grasp. What that means is forcibly retained. He did not consider that something to be forcibly attained. And believe me, I've gotten plenty of arguments with our friends, Jehovah's Witnesses, that'll take me that pass and say, Jesus never had the same as God did. See, he was grasping at it, but never got it. Their grammar's all messed up. That means forcibly retained, something he always had. He did not want to use it for his own advantage. He, he was not like, I think, some of the people in Philippi that, you know, might have been good at something and others had, in, you know, different talents and they were using it against each other. Do you know what equality with God qualified Jesus to do? It qualified him to descend to earth and save his people. That's how Jesus looked at his his equality, his gifts, his status with God. He said, this qualifies me to descend to earth and die for my people. Verse seven, but be, uh, but made himself nothing. Let me just go verse six and let me attach verse seven to it. Who being in nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So this is Jesus. We've seen his humility in heaven. Now we get a view of his humility in the incarnation. It says, the phrase says that he made himself nothing. The more proper translation in Greek, literally, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. And that's why the theologians call this the kenosis passage again. Kanao meaning empty. However, let me warn you, because if you go back in some old commentaries, it was the early 20th century, very liberal theologians got a hold of this and they really abused the meaning. They described this as Jesus emptying himself of his godly attributes. Basically, they say he ceased to be God that all that he left behind, that could not be farther from the truth. You know, and for a long time, I thought, okay, well, but God, Jesus being God is 50% man and 50% God, 50 and 50, 100%. I was okay with that. Such bad theology, such stinking bad theology. He was 100% God and 100% human. I know our math doesn't pen out he was 100% God and 100% human. And again, this, this idea doesn't come easily, nor should it. It is, it is an eternal concept. But let me help you. I think we can get there. So again, I, I struggled with this big time. And in, in the late 80s, I came up to live in the valley. In the early 90s, I was going to church here in Buellton. And there was, uh, I still consider him one of the most competent theologians I ever met, Pastor Dennis McBride. And I said, Dennis, can you help me? I'm locked up on this. What, what does this mean? He's fully God and fully man. And I wrote it in my Bible when he told me. He said, Jeff, I think the best way to describe that is possession versus expression of deity. Possession versus expression of deity. Jesus possessed deity all the time. He did not always express it. And how I made sense of this is, it's personal in my own family, but for instance, I have a son. His name is Brent. 
And when he was a teenager, him and I would go out in the front yard, uh, or in the front street, actually, we had a basketball hoop. We'd play basketball, we'd get after it. We had fun for hours. If you were a third-party observer and didn't know Brent and I, you'd look at us and say, well, they're just two guys out having fun playing basketball. You know, they're, they're pretty good friends. Well, let me tell you what, we quit playing basketball we go in the house and all of a sudden Brent lips off to his mom or is disobedient to me. I relate with him. I interact with him in a much different way. I take on my father role. And if you're a third party observer, there'd be no doubt he's responding to me as a son. I'm responding to him as a father. And I guess I will always possess, not I guess, I know, I will always possess my position as father. I do not always express my position as father to my son. The same way with our Lord. Jesus has always, always will possess deity. He chose not to express it. I hope that makes some sense. Oh, that's nice, bro. <laughs> um, anyway, um, Again, I go back to I don't think I can overemphasize this. It's so important for us to have a correct picture of who the Lord Jesus is. Um, I, it, it will actually affect the way we see everything. The Old Testament, believe me, we get a proper perception of Jesus. It'll change the way you read the Bible. And again, in this passage, it's not as if Jesus takes off his godly garment and puts on this, this overcoat of humanity. It's, it's not that at all. It's, um, I, well, I think there's a couple places in Scripture, but I think one of the best places that really shows, you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on this mountain, and Jesus is transfigured. It, the text says his face shone like the sun. They couldn't even look at it. His clothes were as, were as white as snow or, or too bright for the eyes to see. I picture this as Jesus exhaling a little bit. That's who he was. God was coming through. I think the whole time it was probably harder for him to cloak that glory. Jesus let, let it that, you know, down for a minute and this glory came pouring out. It must have just been a fantastic thing to see. And with that, having that as Jesus' glory, his deity is always there, it adds, I think, a lot of weight and gives us a great position to look at the end of verse 7. It says that, uh, you know, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's kind of like he poured his godliness into this servant container, this servant shape. And can I say, what a servant he was. What a servant the Lord Jesus was. This is going to give true significance to what happened in John 13 in the upper room. Do you remember this? Picture this. In John 13, we find the apostles in the upper room to celebrate what would be the last Passover meal with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the apostles, they secured a room, check. They got the food, check. They got the table, check. They forgot to make arrangements for a foot washer, which was traditional. Any meal before you recline at the table, 
You washed your feet. That's just what you did. So apparently, as I read this, apparently none of the apostles would volunteer for this very lowly task. No, I'm not doing that. How very human of them. How very like us are they? John's gospel records that the meal was underway. They started to eat and the apostles were reclining at the table with their shamefully dirty feet stretching out behind them. All of a sudden, the conversation gets a little tense. They feel something in the air and they see the teacher, Jesus, rise up and walk away from the table. All eyes are on him. They watched as he removed his outer garment and wrapped a towel around his body. Then he poured water into a basin and slowly worked his way around the table, washing the disciples' feet and drying them with a towel. This is a breathtaking moment, my dear friends. You gotta take this in. There should be an imprint of this in your mind. You know, the Midrash taught that it was illegal to force a Hebrew slave or servant to wash feet. No Hebrew had to. You could if you wanted to, but it was done usually by a Gentile. But this, here we have the incarnate son, God himself, dressed like a servant, washing the feet of his prideful, arrogant creatures. He created them. He created them. This is the Lord we worship. I almost feel like I could stop right there. This is the Lord we worship. This is who Jesus is. He did not exchange his form of God for one as a servant. He manifested God into a servant. One last thought on verse seven. Give me a little latitude here. Some of your Bibles, mine says being made in human likeness, some say, or being born in the likeness of men. I like being born in the likeness of men. And I gotta admit, sometimes I think outside of the Bible, which is usually not helpful, but I do it. <laughs> I do it. Um, let me share this with you. So couldn't Jesus have manifested himself or come to earth in the form of a 33-year-old man and not a baby and accomplish what he came here to do? I think he could have. I think he could have done it any way he wants, but the fact that he came as a baby highlights his humility in no uncertain terms. Jesus went through the difficult years of being a small child, a teenager, obeying his mom and dad with perfect obedience. He went through the pains and emotions. Again, remember it's like being a teenager? Jesus was a teenager. The pain and emotion of growing, pain and emotion of, of learning these hard life lessons, the pain and emotion of being a carpenter, having to make a living, going out and working for a living. He did all this. I don't think he had to. I think this shows that his humility and obedience, he can relate 100% with humankind, 100%. He did all this perfectly. And, and to me, this just gives us a greater understanding of who the Lord Jesus is. Now in verse eight, I'll tell you this before I read it. Jesus reaches the bottom rung on the ladder of his descent from heaven. I picture this ladder. He's coming down 
First, he's created as a man, which is crazy. Now we reach the bottom rung of his descent from heaven. Verse 8 says this, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. You know, dear friends, there's a reason... There's a reason Paul uses the word even. He just could have said death on a cross. That even should be a neon light to you. It really should. You see, Christ's death on the cross, the, the crucifixion was the most scandalous way to die. I know you know this, but you need to comprehend the different aspects. It was the most scandalous way to die. Humanity had not created a more degrading and loathsome way to die. That was the most terrible way to die in every way. Listen, you know, I know you know this, but follow me. You are nailed to a cross, naked, slowly dying of suffocation and losing all bodily function in front of a crowd of spectators. I'll let you paint that picture. It's not a good one. This is what our Lord Jesus was doing. So you were nailed to a cross and, and it was slow. It was a slow and excruciating way to die. Did you know this, that the word excruciating comes from the root word cross, excrucis, out of the cross, the Latin crucis? We have a word because that was so horrible, it generated a word that nothing else can compare to. In fact, to... To crucify a Roman citizen, it was illegal. And Rome was running the show at the time. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. Polite Roman society considered the mention of the word cross an obscenity. It was a bad word. You didn't say that word in, in, in a high-class group of people. And this is what's interesting. The city of Philippi, where Paul is writing to, it was a Roman colony, which means that to have citizenship there, you had to be a citizen of Rome. To live there, you had to be a citizen of Rome, 100%. So the reference to the cross had a really strong impact on the readers to this letter. And the Jews, the Jews considered crucifixion, what they thought that meant you were accursed by God. If anyone was crucified, in their mind, they're accursed by God. Listen to what John Calvin in one of his commentaries, listen to what Calvin says about this. Again, he nails it head on. Calvin says this, for by dying in this way, he was not only covered in total humiliation and disgrace in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. It is assuredly such an example of humility as ought to absorb the attention of all men. It is impossible to explain it in words suitable to its greatness. What Jesus did, I dare say, this side of heaven, we can't comprehend. The closer we get to it, the more reality we have about who Jesus is. Think about it. This is the Lord of glory who has ruled and reigned in heaven from eternity past, who created the world, everything in it, who created the universe, who knew no pain prior to his incarnation, now, he's in the position of the most pain discoverable. It is a mind shift and a half. Let me, 
as, yeah, you, you went with my first crazy Bible question or, or little thought. I got another little thought outside the Bible. Again, give me some leeway. Wouldn't the death of the Son of God be just as efficacious if he would have chosen another method to die by? How about beheading? I think it would accomplish a purpose. How about being hung? How about being impaled with a spear real quick? Something at least less painful or gruesome. Couldn't that have happened? I think it could have. No, he chose the worst humanity could produce as a sign of there is no length that Lord Jesus Christ will not go to for us. He did the worst, the whole thing. This is a sign of who Jesus is. And again, I have to really hammer this home. We must know that this death on the cross, it was through obedience voluntarily by Jesus. There was no power in heaven or hell that could force Jesus to do this. At any point, he could have summoned the angelic host. He was still God. He was still God. So before we get too far, let me just bring it back. Yes, Paul's, Paul is, is demonstrating this great theological truth, but why? Let's again think for the Philippians' point of view and ours. Let me just read verse three and five with the picture of Christ doing what he did. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others better than yourselves, not looking out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with others, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, that bar is set pretty high, isn't it? That bar is set pretty high. So serving others, that should be a hallmark of who we are as Christians. It really should be. It should be a visible hallmark. Just not talking about it. People should recognize it by that. And I think when we do that, the world, the unbelieving world takes note. It stands out to them in no uncertain terms. And personally, I believe this will open the door for us to speak to non-believers about Jesus. It's what we do, because it stands out. That's not common. All right, headed for home now, verse 9 through 11. This is now where we've been to the lowest of the low. Now we go to the highest of the high. This section of Scripture, these three verses, describe the honor and the place of Christ. And theologians call this the super exaltation, the super exaltation of Christ. 9 through 11 say this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. A couple of things, this super exaltation comes from verse nine when it says, God exalted into the highest place. That is translated in the Greek, super exaltation. There is nothing higher. But let me draw your attention also in verse nine, when it says God did this, God exalted him. That's talking about God the Father. I'm sure, I'm sure you know this, but let's keep it clear. That's talking about God the Father. Even though Jesus had been through this humiliation and, and the worst of the worst, he did not exalt himself. He would never do that. He did not exalt himself. He let the Father crown him with that glory. These three verses I just read, and I'm just going to touch the surface, they're commuting, uh, communicating great theological truth. I'll, I'll touch a couple of them, and then we'll be done. 
When it says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess, it's speaking about the past, present, and future lordship of Jesus Christ, that the world can and will be saved through Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about universal salvation, I don't believe in that. Some people believe that everyone that's born will be saved. That's not what this is talking about. It is saying that there's only one way to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ, and even those that died and did not confess him at Lord, at some point, they will recognize and confess the Lord Jesus as Lord. Everyone that has ever been born at some point in their life will confess Jesus as Lord. I suggest you do it before you take your last breath. You're gonna do it. It's just a matter when you're gonna do it. There's also, and I love apologetics. There's a great apologetic in, in verse 10 when it, you know, it says at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess. And I know I like to get into it with Jehovah's Witnesses. I used to do it more. I'm glad I don't do it too much now, but there's, there's plenty of little, uh, there, there's good ammo for us in here. You know, they don't believe that Jesus is equal to God. They believe he's a created being at the level of Michael, the archangel. Well, here's what you can do want to write it down. Remember Isaiah 45.23, Isaiah 45.23. Let me read to you what Isaiah 45.23 says. It says, by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Ask the Jehovah's Witness, who's talking in Isaiah? Who is that talking? They immediately will say, well, that's God, that's Jehovah. Then take them to Philippians and say, well, it looks like Jehovah's Jesus, isn't it? It's, it's absolutely unescapable, and, and it's all over. Um, and lastly, just, just a little lesson on the Trinity, because I think we can sometimes get a little blob. Just, just remember this. When we think of the Trinity, it consists of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These Three persons are a triune Godhead. We call it a triune Godhead. And even though as we read God's word, these three persons in the Trinity, they can be described a little bit different and as doing different things. And it can almost seem, well, it's diverse. They're, they're three different gods. No, they're one God. We must always remember there is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity, there is unity and diversity in the community of the Trinity. That's why we can say with 100% surety, maybe some of you call God Yahweh, some Jehovah. It's okay, they're both the same, whatever you please. God the Father is Yahweh, God the Son is Yahweh, God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. And that's why we can have these corresponding verses, Isaiah 45 and Philippians 2, and have them make perfect sense. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In closing, let me say this. Paul was not only, and I've said this a few times, not only communicating the deep theological truth of who Jesus is, the Trinity, he's also teaching us something else he wants us to think about. He was teaching us there's power in humble actions. Listen to that. There is power in humble actions. You see, Paul was in jail and had, but when he wrote this letter, Paul was in jail. I know for a fact over a year, some scholars say a year to two years, but he was in jail when he penned this letter. 
The recipients, the Philippians, remember very well when Paul was in the Philippian jail and the same night there was a divine earthquake, doors opened up, chains came off, boom. But here Paul sits in this prison, no divine earthquake, nothing. He's penning this epistle to the Philippians. That is power, power in humble actions. Let me say this, we have the same opportunity for power in humble actions. You do what the Lord is asking you to do to glorify him and you watch the miracles. You watch the miracles. I'm gonna ask the prayer team to come up if you would and uh, I'll close us in prayer. Um, as I do this, and I just wanna thank the prayer team. I know it's a little sideline thing. You know, some of you that get here early, you see them over here diligently praying for this service. They're praying for who's ever speaking, Pastor Rick, myself, whoever's speaking. This is, this is a, a, a spiritual powerhouse that sustains the exposition of the word, having people pray. So I'm gonna invite you, anyone that wants to, needs to, is feeling like the Holy Spirit, is prompting you to come up and pray. Here's why, many reasons. Number one, certainly and first and foremost, if you don't know, if there's any doubt you've received the Lord, come up right now, confess to him on this side of heaven. If there's any doubt, come up. But listen, as I was, as I was writing this sermon out, right now I want you to have in your mind the picture of God, the Son incarnate, Dress as a servant, washing the disciples' feet. That's the link he'll go to. Maybe some of you metaphorically need your feet cleaned, physically, spiritually. What I'm saying is maybe there's needs in your life. Jesus will go to any length. I suggest you take advantage of this opportunity. He'll meet your needs today. Like I say, whether it's salvation, healing, or something that you don't think is that big, but it's kind of in your life, Bring it to Jesus, watch the links he'll go to. So Father, I, I thank you, I, I, I thank you for your word, I thank you for the truth of Philippians 2. And now simply, Lord, I would ask that we're not just uh, really hearers and, of your word, but we're doers, that, that this word would have impact and import in our life, and we'd be able to step out and accomplish the purpose in which you pen these words. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ranch Church Podcast. For more information and service times, go to ranchchurch.com.